Let us all turn to the Word of God this evening. It's 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy and the chapter 6. I've intimated before now that there's a special relationship between the Apostle and Timothy, the servant of the Lord, Timothy, a young minister, and still under guidance uh, as Paul the Apostle, that eminent servant of Christ, is uh, laboring to have Timothy run the race and finish the course and gain the crown. It's a great thing to read this chapter tonight, First Timothy chapter 6. And of all the dear men of God that were in the work in Paul's time, I think it right to say no one was nearer to Paul than, than Timothy. It was like a father and son relationship. And he would look on Timothy as a son in the faith. Lovely to read the chapter. We're going to begin at verse 1 of First Timothy 6. Let as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honour, that the name of God and his doctrine be not blasphemed. And they that have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather do them service because they are faithful and beloved partakers of the benefit. These things teach and exhort. The teaching would be the instruction and the exhortation would be the power to drive that instruction home. You and I know full well it's relatively easy to sit back and listen to the instruction and then we may make the terrible mistake of not applying it to ourselves, getting into action because of that instruction. That's where the exhortation comes in. It's like the journeyman taking the hammer and already the nails are in position and now the exhortation is driving home the nail. These things teach and exhort. If any man teach otherwise, consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing but doting about questions and strifes of words, where off cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth. There are people in the world tonight who are destitute. It's a terrible situation to be in. But spiritually speaking, this is just dreadful. Beyond all comprehension, to be in that position where you're you're destitute of of the truth, and 
These people are in the category being described at the moment. And they have a supposition that enables them to sail on through life. And like many, a supposition is wrong. It's not based on Scripture. Supposing that gain is godliness. From such, withdraw thyself. In other words, watch your company. Who's the Lord speaking to tonight? Watch your company. From such, withdraw thyself. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world. And it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. But they that will be rich, or they that who, who desire to be rich, who are living with that sole object in mind all the time, they that desire to be rich, who will be rich, fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But thou, O man of God, you see how Paul esteems this young servant of Christ. He's able to put the label on him to say, you're a man of God, Timothy. Now, play the man, fly the flag, honor God, press on. Thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Fight the good fight of faith. They hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called, and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. Praise the Lord for the reading of his word tonight and the preaching of it too, for his name's sake. Amen. Our text tonight is found in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse number 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and the 6th verse. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. I mentioned this morning that I want to speak for a little while tonight, very simply, upon the subject of contentment. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and the 6th verse. Let's unite our hearts together. Let's still ourselves before the throne of grace and pray that the Lord will come and speak to our hearts. Loving God and everlasting Father, we thank Thee for these beautiful words we've been singing that speak to us about heaven and home, Emmanuel's land. And we thank Thee, O God, that we have so much in the Christian life in this earth and in the world to come to look forward to. We rejoice, O God, that we're really only getting started. 
And we thank Thee, O God, tonight for the contentment that each one can enjoy in knowing and in loving and in serving Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Lord and our Master. We pray tonight, Lord, for some that are maybe in this very building, others that are watching in online from their home or from some other place, and still, Lord, for others who will listen in at a later time, who know nothing of spiritual Christian contentment. O oh God, we pray for such that the Spirit of God will speak to their hearts, that you'll bring them to the cross, and grant, Lord, that a work might be done that will glorify the Savior and be a blessing to the souls of men and women. So, Father, I pray now for thy help. Hide me behind the cross. Grant the infilling of the Spirit of God. And may all things dovetail together for thine honor and for thy glory, because we offer our prayers with thanksgiving in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. Many years ago, an old Puritan by the name of Jeremiah Burroughs wrote a little book simply entitled The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. I have to confess tonight that I haven't read that book. I don't even have it in my possession. But certainly the title in itself is telling. Christian Contentment and True Contentment is a Jewel but it's sadly a rare jewel that many people do not possess. I wonder tonight, can I ask you, do you possess that jewel, the rare jewel of Christian contentment? Contentment in our day and generation is a rare thing indeed. In the United Kingdom, in a period between November of 1978 and February of 1979, life in Britain was characterized by widespread labor strikes, industrial disputes, the coldest winter in 16 years, severe storms and winds, and also along with that, a lot of civil unrest. And they called it the winter of discontent, the winter of discontent. Content. And we are living in a day and generation of discontentment. I think perhaps almost every winter over the last decade and every summer and every autumn and every spring have been seasons of discontentment in our day and generation. It seems that discontentment is the new norm. Many people have resigned themselves to a life of unhappiness, a life of dissatisfaction, a life without peace, a life without hope, a life of discontentment. And it's my conviction that the Word of God tells us that this spirit of discontentment will escalate in the closing days of time. The book of Daniel in chapter 12 records it in verse number 4, that in the last days many shall run to and fro, Knowledge shall be increased, but along with that, a spirit of discontentment. People running to and fro, traveling all over the globe, yes, but in a sense, running to and fro from this thing to that thing to try to find contentment within the heart. Discontentment is the new norm. I don't believe that there's ever been 
uh, such a, a time of discontentment. So many people now are discontented in their marriages, discontented in their jobs. Many churchgoers are discontented in the churches that they attend. Many people are discontented with social policies. Political leaders rise and, and fall. Many people are discontented with their house, their car. Many people are discontented with their very bodies and their physical appearance. Many more are discontent with the gender that they were assigned with at birth. And still others are discontent with life itself. And we are living certainly in a day of discontentment. It's my conviction as well that this discontentment is directly related to our departure from the things of God. The hymn writer said, none but Christ can satisfy. And whenever we edge God out, that's what ego is. We talk about having a, a good ego, good self-esteem. Ego is really edging God out. And the more we edge God out of society, edge God out of our lives and homes and families, edge God out of our schools and institutions, and even edge God out of our churches, the more discontentment there will be in the world around us. The Apostle Paul, however, said in 1 Timothy 6, 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Furthermore, he said in Philippians and chapter 4 and verse number 11, I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. And the author of the epistle to the Hebrews said in Hebrews 13, 5, let your conversation, and the word conversation there really means your behavior, your demeanor, your lifestyle, your manner of living. Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as ye have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. I wonder tonight, can I ask you that question again? Do you enjoy contentment? Are you a contented person? Or are you always looking for something more? Looking for something else? Like a frog in a pond, hopping from lily pad to lily pad, or like a butterfly from flower to flower, and everything you try never really satisfies that longing within your heart, and you're dissatisfied and discontent. The Oxford English Dictionary defines contentment simply as a feeling of being happy or satisfied. The root word there in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 6 that is translated contentment carries with it the idea of sufficiency. I've got enough. I'm satisfied with my lot in life. I'm satisfied with my Savior. I'm satisfied with my God. I'm satisfied with my salvation. And my God is fully sufficient for me. One old preacher said, Contentment is an embracing of the providence of God. And tonight I just want to simply preach a simple message on the subject of contentment. And I want to consider contentment from three perspectives. Contentment in life, contentment in death, 
and then contentment in eternity. Contentment in life, contentment in death, and then contentment in eternity. First of all, let's think for a few moments about contentment in life. Contentment is an inexhaustible treasure, and there is scarcely anything more desirable than contentment. I think everybody in the right frame of mind wants to be content, wants to be satisfied, wants to be at peace with themselves and at peace with others. Everybody in the right frame of mind and right thinking wants to be happy within in themselves and wants to enjoy contentment. And yet for the majority, for the masses, for the unbeliever, there is certainly an absence of contentment. In life, for the unbeliever, there's an absence of contentment. Never has there been a time when people had so much of material possessions, of fine homes, of family and friends and food in their closets and cupboards and in their fridges and such clothing and all of the things that that we enjoy never before, really, have we had so much. Speak to the older generations, and they talk about how whenever they were young, they, they didn't maybe have all of the things that we have. There was maybe no national health service. There was maybe no welfare system. Money was in short supply. You had to make do with darning your socks and mending jumpers and handing down clothes to the younger generation and and many people lived without television, and certainly there's no such thing as social media. I think of my own mother and the home that she has brought up in a little cottage without electricity. No television, just a little radio that was turned on for maybe five or ten minutes every day. And yet she could testify to a wonderful sense of contentment, even though her parents never owned a motor car or anything like that. And here we are today, never have we had so much. And at the same time, never have we had so little. Whenever we think about the values and the virtues that people used to hold dear, many of those things have gone. Man's moral compass in 2023, in the 21st century, mankind's moral compass somehow seems to have broken. It's like a compass without a magnet. There's no direction. And we have hewn out broken cisterns that hold no water. And we have forsaken the God of the Bible. Never has society appeared to be so bleak and so hopeless and so uncertain. Last December, the Daily Telegraph in England had a headline, and it simply said that unhappiness and divorce set to rise in the new year. That's the outlook that the modern media give for this world of ours. That unhappiness is going to rise and spiral out of control. Never has man had so much. And at the same time, never has man had so little. Never has man been as discontent, it seems, as he is in this day and generation. Just like the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 57, the wicked are like the troubled sea which has no rest day or night. And it always seems that the heart of man and the soul of man is so unsettled, doesn't like to be alone with his own thoughts. 
The Bible says, be still and know that I am God. But we are living in a society where people hate stillness. People hate quietness. We always have to be distracted and diverted and amused. Do the word amuse? It literally means not to think. The word muse means think. The little letter A is put on as a negative prefix. And the word amuse means not think. And we are bent today on amusement, not thinking about real core issues that make up the fabric of life and the fabric of society. We choose not to think. We always have to have noise or images or screens or people around us because we don't like to be alone with our own thoughts. And it's highlighting this root problem of being discontented. In John chapter 3, we're introduced to Nicodemus. He was a very religious man, but he was discontent with his religious experience. In John chapter 4, we are introduced to the Samaritan woman. She had been married and divorced five times. And now she's cohabiting with a man that's not her husband. And still she's discontent. We read as well about about the demoniac in Mark chapter 5. The Bible says he had his dwelling in the mountains and then in the tombs. Sometimes he was on the hillside. Sometimes he was down by the sea. And the Word of God says always night and day, crying and cutting himself with stones. And no man could bind him, not with chains. His root problem, discontentment. We think as well about Demas that Paul mentions in 2 Timothy chapter 4, a man who had a profession of Christianity, but didn't have stickability, and maybe didn't have reality. And Demas forsook the apostle Paul, having loved this present world, and was looking for something, but couldn't seem to find it anywhere, and had forsaken the apostle Paul. Somebody once said, the poorest man in the world is the one who is always wanting more than he has. The poorest man in the world is the man who always wants more than he presently has. And that's the thinking of this world. The more that you have, the more content you will be. But it seems that oftentimes the opposite is the case. The more we have, the more we want. It's like an old rock song that they used to sing years ago. I used to get a little, but a little wasn't doing. So a little got more and more. I just keep trying to get a little better, a little better than before, and I always seem to want more. The Bible says that the eye is not satisfied with seeing, and they always seem to desire more. And yet the things of the world, material things, cannot satisfy the spiritual needs of the human soul. The things which are temporal cannot satisfy the things that are eternal. Your soul was made for communion with God, and only Jesus Christ is able to satisfy the human soul. As we think about the subject of contentment as it relates to life in this earth, we think about the unbeliever, and there's an absence of contentment. And then for the believer, there should be an enjoyment of contentment. For the child of God, the Christian who knows and loves the Lord Jesus Christ, 
their sense of contentment and satisfaction is not based upon physical or financial or circumstantial or material events. The Apostle Paul, writing from a prison cell in the city of Rome, could write to the believers in the city of Philippi in Philippians chapter 4.11, I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. Paul was not enjoying physical liberty. Paul was not enjoying financial prosperity. Paul was not enjoying social security. Paul was not experiencing emotional hilarity. But with all that said, Paul's able to write to that church in Philippi and say, but nevertheless, I am content. Fanny Crosby, born into the state of New York as a little girl, took an eye infection. She was only a matter of weeks old. An unwitting doctor subscribed to her mother a hot mustard poultice to be rubbed in the little girl's eyes. Her mother, in ignorance, did what the doctor told her. And within a few days, Fanny Crosby could not see at all. And she never remembered a day in her life whenever she could see. And yet as a little girl, she came to know Jesus Christ as her Savior. And she wrote a little poem and it simply said, Oh, what a happy child I am. Although I cannot say, I am resolved whate'er my state, contented I will be. And so it was with the Apostle Paul. Whatever state he found himself in, he was resolved, I'm going to enjoy contentment. Paul's contentment was firmly rooted in the gospel. And beloved tonight, even as Christian people, we need to remind ourselves that that's where our contentment must come from. God has so made us and so created us, and even as Christians so designed us, that we will never find real contentment outside of the things that pertain to God. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And as long as we are looking for things outside of Christ to make us happy, to give us peace, satisfaction, sufficiency, and contentment, we will never be content. And many professing Christians, many believers, we need to learn the lesson as well. I think such is the spirit of the age that it's really rubbing off on the church. And now believers, like the children of Israel, whenever they were in the wilderness and God fed them with manna from heaven, and it was satisfying to their taste, they enjoyed it, they gathered it every morning, it was sweet, it was nourishing, it was fresh, and yet they got to a stage in their wilderness journey when they lamented, our soul loatheth this light bread. Give us something else. Maybe tonight as a Christian, that's your life. That's your testimony. That's your biography. The Christ that once satisfied you. The Word that once nourished your soul no longer does. And you've got diverted like pilgrim and hopeful off the, the straight and narrow into bypath meadows. And now you find yourself so discontent 
and you're like a dog chasing your tail, running around in circles, not knowing what you're looking for. All you know is, somewhere along the line, you've lost that spirit of contentment. And yet the Apostle Paul was content, and his contentment was drawn from the principles of the gospel. Paul was content, why? Because of the pardon of God in his life. Peace with God. A peace that passes all understanding. He wrote in Romans chapter 5, 1, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then also the provision of God in his life. He said in Philippians 4, My God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Paul's able to say, I've got the pardon of God. I've enjoyed the provision of God. My life has been dedicated to the purpose of God. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God and to those who are called according to His purpose. And so if Paul finds himself in a prison cell, he knows it's the purpose and plan of God for my life that I am found here. And being in the hollow of God's hand, I am immortal until God calls me home. And friends, there's such a thing as well as the presence of God that brings contentment. Hebrews 13, 5, Be content with such things as ye have, for he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. And even in that dark Roman prison cell, cold and harsh circumstances and surroundings that Paul found himself in, even there the Lord was with him. And he enjoyed the presence of God. William Gurnall, an old preacher from a bygone generation, said, The holy person, the holy person is the only contented man in the world. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Contentment in life. I wonder tonight, do you have it? But what about contentment in death? Nobody likes to talk about death. Nobody likes to think about death. Nobody really likes to prepare for death in the sense of preparing for what death really is. We might have our pension policies tied up. We might have power of attorney signed over to our children and our nearest and dearest. We might have our insurance policies gathered together and our investment programs all tied up. But dear friends, have you really prepared for death? Whenever it comes, your time to die. And death is the most democratic thing in all the world. Everybody gets to experience it. Will you die contented? Will there be contentment in your soul? And again, like the unbeliever in life for the unbeliever in death, there's an absence of contentment. The natural man has an awful fear of death and also an awful fear of falling ill and becoming unwell because somehow we know that if we become unwell, it might lead to death and we don't want to experience death because we do not know what death really is and where death might lead us to. That's why I believe in the last two or three years now with all that's going on with the, the COVID panic, it has really highlighted man's innate fear of death. 
the very thought of getting ill and the very thought of the possibility of dying resulted in global discontentment. Everybody seems to be afraid of death. Most people are discontented in considering death. And then many people are discontented whenever facing death. We maybe don't see it so much nowadays because people can be sedated. They fall into a sense of panic and discontentment. And then they get sedated and they're put into a kind of comatose state. They're not able to process what's happening. They're put into a kind of slumber, into a kind of sleep, and they're sedated because naturally man, whenever he comes to face death, if he knows that he's facing it, will certainly be discontented. Somehow we know that it is not the end. The book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon said, concerning the natural man in Ecclesiastes 3 verse 11, that God has put the world in our hearts. And the word that is translated world there could also be rendered eternity. It really means the world to come. God has put eternity within the heart of man. And only the eternal can fill it. And somehow in our hearts we know that there's something out there that we've never experienced before. Back there, the prophet Jeremiah said in Jeremiah chapter 12 and verse number 5, If thou hast run with the footmen, and they have wearied thee, then how canst thou contend with horses? And if in the land of peace wherein thou trustedst, they weary thee, how wilt thou do in the swelling of Jordan? And Jeremiah saying to us, If you cannot be content, and you're so at unease with the things that are happening in life, how will you do whenever you come to face death? If you cannot cope with life's problems, how will you come to cope whenever you have to face the king of terrors and the terror of kings? How wilt thou do in the swelling of Jordan? On Jordan's stormy banks I'll stand and cast a watchful eye. Every single one of us one day will feel the icy waters of the Jordan lapping at our feet and then enveloping us. And we'll have to cross over from this world into the next. I wonder, will you enjoy contentment on that day? For the unbeliever in life and in death, there's an absence of contentment. And yet for the Christian who loves the Savior, filled with the Holy Ghost, in life and also in death, there should be an enjoyment of contentment. One time, many years ago, John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement, was approached by another man, and that other individual said, Mr. Wesley, your people seem to die well. What a testimony. Your people seem to die well. And what they meant by that was they didn't have a fear of death. And they could face death head on because they seemed to have an assurance that all would be well. And Mr. Wesley himself was challenged by that in his unconverted days, traveling across the Atlantic Ocean in a great storm. And he cried out for fear of his life. And on the deck of the ship, there were a group of German believers, Moravians, 
And they were singing and praising God and praying, like Paul and Silas in the prison cell in Acts chapter 16. And John Wesley looked at them, a religious man, though he was, and he recognized there are men and women that are content. And in all likelihood, this could be the last night we enjoy on this earth. But they had a spirit of contentment. And then he came to know that himself and his followers. They died well. I wonder tonight, whenever it comes, your time and mine to die, will we die well? The Christian, the child of God, can say, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Philippians 1.21, Paul said, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. As he lay in a prison cell and wrote his last letter, we considered them last Lord's Day evening. In 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse number 6, I am now ready to be offered. And the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. There's a man that's content to live. There's a man as well that's content to die. I remember a man that I had the privilege one time of pointing to the Savior. I'd got to know him for, I suppose, a couple of years. He was a very discontented man whenever I first met him. He had money to burn, but he had no joy in his heart. He suffered with an awful uh, diagnosis of clinical depression. He always seemed to be spending money and had to have people around him. And then one night at a gospel mission, he waited behind and he simply said, I need to be sure that I'm saved and right with God. And he trusted Christ. About a year later, he was diagnosed with aggressive and terminal cancer. And I have to say, I really wondered in my heart, how will this affect Derek's faith? And yet as I watched that man's progress, I saw a man who had absolutely no fear at all. In fact, whenever I sat at his bedside shortly before he went to be with the Savior, a couple of weeks before he died, he was in a, a, a purpose-built new nursing home, and he was in that room, and he had Bible texts around him. He was listening to Christian music. He witnessed to every nurse that came in. And I tell you, as I sat by his bedside, he would have given you the impression that he had been saved for 50 or 60 years. Such was the level of maturity and acceptance and assurance that he knew where he was going. And there was a man who had never really enjoyed contentment for the greater part of his life. But in the closing months of his life on this earth, he was a man that knew what contentment was. Why? Because the sting was gone. And he recognized that death has lost its substance. Death, yes, is an enemy. But death is only a shadow. You know, you cannot get bitten by the shadow of a dog. You cannot be stabbed with the shadow of a sword. You cannot be shot with the shadow of a gun. And for the Christian, death is only a shadow. Cannot touch the believer. Brings us and ushers us into heaven and into glory itself. Many years ago, a southern plantation owner was being chauffeur-driven through one of his great plantations. And he saw one of his workers, a, a man of African descent, his name was Moses. Moses had his head bowed in prayer. 
And as that wealthy, rich plantation owner asked the chauffeur to stop the car, he got out and says, Moses, what are you praying about? And Moses held up a piece of cornbread and says, Master, I'm thanking God for my food. And the plantation owner just laughed at him and mocked him. And as he was about to get back into the car, Moses turned around and said, Sir, I had a dream last night that this evening, sometime before midnight, the richest man in the valley will die. And he got back to eating his lunch and got back to his work. The plantation owner got back into the car, was somewhat unsettled by what he had just heard. Whenever he got back home, he mentioned that to his wife. They called for the family doctor who was a friend of theirs. And he invited the doctor for lunch and invited them then for dinner and asked the doctor to do a quick examination. All seemed to be well. And he says, doctor, would you stay on for a little while? And they played cards together. And as it got late into the evening hours, the, crocs, the clock struck 11. It came to half past 12. And the doctor said, sir, I have to go home now. I have to leave you. The plantation owner looked at his watch and said, sir, I'll let you go. And I have to apologize for detaining you so long. It's just that one of the workers said something today that unsettled me. He said that tonight the richest man in the valley would die. And I was afraid. And with that, the doctor put on his coat. The plantation owner escorted him to the door. And just as he opened the door, there was another worker standing on the other side of the door about to knock. And he said, Sir, I just thought you might like to know that tonight Moses, Moses died just before he went to bed. You see, Moses was the richest man in the valley. Why? Because he knew that his sins were forgiven. I tell you, friend, tonight there is something more than gold. The little children's chorus said, A certain man of whom we read, who lived in days of old, yet he was rich, he felt the need of something more than gold. Oh yes, my friend, there's something more, there's something more than gold. To know your sins are all forgiven is something more than gold. Contentment in life, contentment in death. One last little thought in closing, contentment in eternity. If man does not like to think or talk or plan for death, much less does he like to think or talk or plan for eternity. We are so earthbound in our thinking. Whenever we attend funeral services, great talks are given about a person's life on earth, and we think very little about the life to come. And as it is in time, as it is at death, and as it is in eternity, for the unbeliever, there's a very conspicuous absence of contentment. Sin and a life without Christ will always result in a level of discontentment in life. I believe it ascends to a greater height of death. And then there's the full experience of discontentment in eternity. No sinner will be content beyond the grave. Revelation 14, 11 simply says they have no rest day or night. Those who die in their sins, they have no rest day or night. You know, I have to say that I get so unsettled, so troubled in my soul whenever I hear about somebody passing this scene of time, 
having no time for the gospel, no time for Christ, no profession of faith, no interest in the things of God at all. And people will say, make statements, well, it's good for them to get away. At least they're not suffering now, and certainly they've gone to a better place. And I always think about the the story, I believe the historical record that the Savior presented in Luke 16, 19 through 31, when he said, there was a certain rich man, clothed in purple and fine linen, who fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar laid at his gate named Lazarus, full of sores, and desiring to be fed with the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table, and moreover the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abram's bosom. The rich man also died, and in hell lifted up his eyes, being in torments, and prayed, saying, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. There was a man who lived and died without Christ. But the one thing that he could not do without Christ was get to heaven. You can live without Christ. You can die without Christ. But one thing no man can do is get to heaven without Christ. And that man who maybe boasted of a level of contentment in this life because he could fund his lavish lifestyle, he never knew what it was to be cold or hungry or naked or destitute. But from eternity's perspective, there was no contentment physically because he said, I am tormented. There was no contentment materially because he didn't even have a glass of water. There was no contentment mentally because Abraham said, son, remember. There was no contentment emotionally because he realized that his five brethren were hot in his heels and there was no contentment spiritually because there was a great gulf that was fixed, and there was no contentment that it would ever, ever, ever end. What an awful thing to never enjoy contentment for eternity. I must be faithful to your soul. I must be faithful to the Scriptures. I must be faithful to the Savior. I must be faithful to my own conscience. There is an eternity, a vast eternity, And you need to get ready and you need to prepare. And yet for the believer, we enjoy a level of contentment in this life. The believer will enjoy a degree of contentment at death. But the Christian, the child of God, will experience absolute and abundant and full everlasting contentment in eternity. The hymn writer was absolutely correct whenever they said, there will be no sorrow there, no more burdens to bear, all is peace forevermore on that happy golden shore. What a day, glorious day that will be. What an eternity awaits the Christian. The most detailed description of the new Jerusalem of heaven itself is given in Revelation 21 in negative terms. No sickness. No pain, no sorrow, no night, no sea, no sin, no tears, no death. Why is it explained in negative terms? Because the eye hath not seen, neither hath the ear heard, 
Neither hath it entered into the heart of man the things that God hath prepared for them that love him. The story is told of a certain city, two men living at opposite ends of the town, at opposite ends as well of the social spectrum. It's a little bit like Luke 16. One was wealthy. He had amassed a fortune. He lived in an old, beautiful Victorian home filled with antiques and paintings and a state-of-the-art car and a lake at the back of the house with a boat on it. The other living at the other side of town was never blessed financially, but he loved the Lord and he worked faithfully in his village church. And they both came to die. The wealthy man was crying out in his deathbed, I'm leaving home. I'm leaving home. The poor Christian cried out on his deathbed, I'm going home. I'm going home. You know, the tiniest fraction of a percentage, the tiniest, minutest fraction of a percentage of our existence relates to time. The vast majority 99.999 for infinity relates to eternity. I wonder tonight what you're really living for. Do you have contentment in life? Will you have contentment at death? Will you have contentment for eternity? Two words that I believe can lead to contentment. The first word is the word conversion. Conversion to Christ, turning the life around and coming to Christ and repenting and trusting in the Savior, becoming a Christian, conversion. And then as a Christian, another word, consecration. You don't hear much talk about it nowadays, granted. But the Bible says, who is willing this day to consecrate a service unto the Lord, to recognize the Lordship of Christ. And having been converted to live a life of consecration and to give your life absolutely 100% into the hands of your God and to recognize the Lordship of Christ and to live a life of worth and a life of obedience so that you can enjoy the presence of God, the blessing of the Lord that maketh rich and that addeth no sorrow. Godliness with contentment is great gain.